And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're joining us on this Holy Thursday, where we get a chance to commemorate uh, the first Mass and recognizing, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ as a great high priest and his implementation of what we call the New Testament priesthood. My guest, Dr. John Bergsma, is professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's also vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's the author of a number of very uh, outstanding books, including uh, most recently, Jesus in the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. But he's also co-author with Brent Petrie of A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament. And uh, he's also author of a book that we've talked about on this program before, Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Dr. Bergsman speaks regularly for parish missions, diocesan conferences, clergy convocations, and other events uh, nationally and internationally. John, good to have you back with me. Thanks. Great to be out with you, Al. Let's, uh, you know, I'm remembering back about 30 years ago to a conversation I had with one of the elders in the church that I pastored. And um, it started out with him saying, Al, I don't see how you can get from the New Testament to the Catholic Church. Uh, In the New Testament, you've got house churches and a Lord's Supper, which is not a ritualized mass or ceremony, but an actual meal. There's no sign of the priesthood. There's no highly mandated worship. And I joked with him and said, look, uh, I don't see how you can come up with the New Testament without the Catholic Church, and then tried to show him that the so-called primitive Christianity that he sees on the pages of the New Testament might not be so primitive as he thought. But he insisted, it came down to this, there's no ministerial priesthood in the New Testament. Uh, We have a priesthood of all believers. Um, This idea of a distinctive ministerial priesthood is unscriptural. Jesus is our great high priest. There's no need for a human priesthood. That's, uh, well, actually, that's what I taught for many years. Uh, This is not an uncommon position among non-Catholic Protestants, especially evangelical and fundamentalists. You were raised with that kind of tradition, too? Uh, That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. We sort of viewed uh, the ministerial priesthood, we wouldn't have used that term, but we would have said, you know, the the Catholic priesthood is, uh, you know, a medieval corruption, kind of a step backwards towards Judaism. Right, right. In your own own story, um, when do you become aware that this idea of the priesthood is very different than what you had become accustomed to growing up. Yeah. So, you know, the the process of coming into the Catholic Church, Al, you know, really for me the the watershed moment was reading in Ignatius of Antioch, uh, his letter to the Smyrnians, where he gives such a blunt testimony to the real presence in the Eucharist, where he warns the Smyrnian Christians yep. to stay away from anyone who refuses to confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of Jesus Christ, <laughs> which suffered for our sins, the Father raised in His goodness. You know, yeah. so just a beautiful passage there. And uh, my the the first inklings that I got Al about the necessity of a priesthood really just came a few hours after reading that shocking statement from Ignatius of Antioch. I was trying to process the implications of that. What if it's really true, as this early father says? What if the Eucharist really is the flesh of Jesus Christ? And I began to think, well, if that's the case, then obviously 
not every believer can be granted the power to transubstantiate bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, because then you'd have seven-year-old boys sitting in their bedroom <laughs> consecrating rich crackers, and all right. kinds of profanations would go on. So the the implications that, no, something really happens in the Lord's Supper, something really happens in the Eucharist. Uh, I began to think through that. I'm like, oh, if that's the case, then we really do need, like, a specially trained, um, you know, core uh, of of men to handle this, so to speak, radioactive material that we yep. have. This yep. is spiritually radioactive material, just like anything that's powerful and dangerous. You you train people to handle mm-hmm. it properly. Mm-hmm. And the Eucharist is this this dangerous, in a holy sense, uh, and powerful, um, you know, gift from God. And so, it really, the implication then is there has to be then a priesthood in the new covenant. That that was the the, the watershed for me. It was kind of you know, dawning on me through the Holy Spirit and, and just the existential implications of the Eucharist really being the flesh of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it's shocking when that hits you for the first time. I imagine you would have asked then, <clears throat> what's the relationship between this priesthood, whatever it is, under the New Covenant, and the priesthood under the Old Covenant? And of course, your book goes, takes us all the way back to Adam and a priestly angle on this. Um, did you realize that this idea of the priesthood went all the way back to Adam? I didn't at the time, not not at my conversion now. Um you know, I realized we needed a priesthood, and that was enough for me at the moment. Right, me uh, too. <laughs> to pull, yeah, to pull the trigger and come into the Catholic Church. Then it was actually years later, Al, when um, uh, Pope Benedict, and I'm sure you remember this, uh, I can't remember the year, but uh, he proclaimed a year of the priest. And so suddenly we were, you know, the whole Church was doing a lot of thought about priesthood, mm-hmm. and a local parish asked me to uh, come up with some talks on the Bible and the priesthood. And so, you know, I sat down, you know, I had been a Catholic for a number of years now, and I've been teaching at Franciscan for a while, and I sat down with the scriptures, and I just said, okay, let's see what we can find here. And I went back and, and began with Adam, and, and suddenly I began to see it everywhere, just everywhere, <laughs> out, you know? Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it's one of the themes, one of those themes that runs through. I mean, you can... You can teach a whole course on the on biblical theology just by following the development of the priesthood, and, and that's what I kind of try to do in this book. I think many people would say, priesthood, Adam? I don't see it. So why don't you help us see the priesthood in Adam to begin with? Oh, yeah, this is a consensus among Bible scholars. And again, Al, you know, we, we read as uh, 21st century Americans, and we're reading in, in translation and so on, and, and so oftentimes we don't get um, some of the nuances of what's in the original language. But right. in Genesis 2.15, you know, there's a, this famous verse, Adam is placed in the garden to work and to guard in it. And as Bible scholars have been pointing out for a number of years now, that that phrase, work and guard, um, has uh, priestly connotations, because hmm. if, you, if you do a word search on it throughout uh, the Old Testament, you'll find that those two verbs are used together frequently to describe the duties of the uh, Old Testament priesthood, especially in the book of Numbers, where they're supposed to work the work 
and guard the guardianship in Hebrew, which means to celebrate the liturgy and keep the sanctuary clean. So <clears throat> taking that knowledge back, we realized, oh my goodness, you know, Adam was really you know, given a mission by God as a priest in the garden. The garden was the original sanctuary. He was the original priest. His labor had a, a, a priestly dimension to it from mm-hmm. the very beginning. And I think, really think it's a model for all of us, um, you know, Al, uh, you know, baptized into Christ, you know, we, we regain this kind of priesthood that goes back to Adam, and, and our work can become holy, and our work can become a priestly sacrifice once more. For, for uh, if Adam was the priest and the garden was the holy of holies, uh, what was the temple? Um, the temple, I think, you know, this is, this is, there's different, uh, views on this, but, uh, there's this, you know, some have advocated the view that, um, the temple was meant to spread over the earth, that Adam was meant to cultivate the earth, beginning with the garden, which was the, you know, the most holy place, and then extend that temple nature by, uh, expanding his dominion, uh, over the earth until the whole earth became a temple. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, with uh, you know the, the holy place in the garden, mm. so in a way that's that's what the mission of the the church is. The the church is the new temple um, composed of living stones. And when Jesus tells the apostles in in Acts one that they're going to witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, this is like the spread of the new temple. They're going to do what Adam was called to do and, and convert the earth into one temple of worship for God. Mm. This is tremendous, especially in, New Te- in the New Testament, Gospel of John, second chapter, where Jesus identifies himself uh, as the new temple. Uh, and we are, by faith and baptism, united with him. Take me then to, from Adam, take me quickly to um, the other major covenant figures of the Old Testament, and what's distinctly priestly uh, about? You've got uh, Noah, you've got Abraham, uh, you've got uh, the Sinai Covenant, you have David. Uh, you're, as I understand from reading your book, you're really arguing and from the Scriptures that you can see the development of this idea of the priesthood right on through uh, all these various uh, subordinate covenants. Oh, definitely. So from uh, Adam to the time of Noah, the priesthoods, the uh, Adam's priesthood, you know, kind of like a high priesthood for all humanity, is passed down from uh, father to firstborn son. You see Noah exercising that priesthood. He, he sacrifices and does priestly acts as soon as he gets off the ark. Um, that it continues to be passed down to, for example, Abraham. You see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob acting as priests for. The, the, their clan, this, this entire clan that they are leading. And um, that continues all the way down to Moses. But then at, uh, at Sinai, an interesting thing happens after the golden calf sin, uh, Al, where the, the natural you know, priesthood of father to firstborn son in Israel fails and they fall into idolatry. Then the priesthood is taken away from uh, the firstborn, you know, passed down from father to son, mm-hmm. and it's given to the pre- to the uh, tribe of Levi, and that's the Old Testament priesthood that most of us are familiar with, which continues from Exodus 32 
throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we we have this Levitical priesthood. So this is the a major exception. turning point, then. It is. It's absolutely yeah. a major turning point. And it, but but it's important to notice for us as as readers that it was a plan B. That that wasn't the original intention. That original intention was that firstborn, uh, you know, receives it from their father, a more natural kind of priesthood. Now the only. Ex- exception is, is later with David, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that in just a moment here. My guest, Dr. John Bergsma, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood, an outstanding uh, new book, which uh, we're sharing with you today on this uh, Holy Thursday. I'm Al Cresta. We'll be right back. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today's a day for us to reflect upon the meaning, the significance, the presence of a divinely ordained priesthood. Uh, Jesus himself, the great high priest, but also on uh, Holy Thursday, implementing the uh, what we call the New Testament priesthood. But we're looking back at the Old Testament because, of course, there's continuity between the, the covenants And there's a major turning point after the um, golden calf incident in the book of Exodus. And uh, we move from the priesthood of the firstborn, which has been, uh, which has failed. And we're now transferred, the priesthood is transferred to what we familiarly known as the Levitical priesthood. Uh, I want to just stick with that a moment, John, John, Dr. John Bergsma, my guest. Uh, this idea of the, um, the the shift from the priesthood of, of the firstborn to the Levitical priesthood is a step backward. Um, what was understood by Moses by this phrase, a kingdom of priests? Mm-hmm. Indeed. A wonderful, wonderful uh, phrase with a, with a lot of theology going on there in Exodus 19, 5, and 6, where um, just prior to receiving the Ten Commandments and forming the covenant with God, remember that a covenant is a family bond mm-hmm. established by an oath, and, um, and, and Moses speaks on behalf of God and tells the people of Israel, if you keep this covenant, you will be to me a royal priesthood. And that means that the entire people are going to share, in a, in a sense, in yeah. both royalty, which is kingship, and priesthood. And yet, there are also going to be some set aside specifically for liturgical duties. And so you already see uh, in ancient Israel this um, both a, a common priesthood shared by every member of the community, as well as those who are set aside specifically for, um, you know, liturgical responsibility, which we call a ministerial priesthood. And that's a model later taken up in the Church. That's what we have in the Church today. Um, that's a model also that was interestingly lived by the Essenes, who we, we've talked before yeah. about on this show. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it has roots, you know, the, the, the Catholic understanding that we're both we have a common priesthood for each of the baptized, as well as those set aside for liturgical duties that we call a ministerial priesthood. This is this has precedent, uh, you know, in, in ancient Judaism as well as the scriptures themselves uh, in Exodus, etc. 
So, well, we've got the implementation of the the Levitical priesthood now. Um, how does this how does this proceed? What's the responsibility of the Levitical priesthood in relationship to the you know your your member regular old lay member? of the nation of Israel? What is the Levitical priesthood to do, and what's the responsibility of the, uh, uh, the lay members, so to speak? Sure. So uh, the laity are to live a holy life, and that's um, you know largely the burden of Leviticus, is explaining to the people of Israel the, the holiness of life that they were supposed to live, and then to bring sacrifice to the sanctuary, and the sacrifices that they brought represented the offering of their entire lives. And then uh, the ministerial priests, the Levitical priests, um, had several responsibilities. You know, they were to um, offer the sacrifices brought by the lady on the behalf of the lady, um, administer the forgiveness of sins, and literally to hear confession. This is in Leviticus 5. When you sinned under the Old Covenant, you had to confess to the priest and bring the appropriate sacrifice. And he mm-hmm. heard your confession and offered the sacrifice on your behalf and, and then administered the forgiveness of sin. The priesthood also was responsible for interpreting God's law if there was any confusion about it. Uh, we see that in an overlooked passage in Deuteronomy 17. That's a, but that's a very important responsibility. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, uh, you know, they were to to bless the people, you know, bestow the people, place place God's name on the people, as we see in number six, uh, which is, you know, to to bestow God's presence on on the people so that they could experience, um, you know, f- you know, flourishing and um, and 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 joy and peace, etc. So, blessing, offering sacrifice, administering the forgiveness of sins, interpreting the law, these are all duties that belong to the Old Testament priests and. Interestingly, Al, we see Jesus um, giving those responsibilities one by one at different stages in the Gospel over to the Apostles. It's amazing, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and I never, I never saw it. <laughs> Me either. Uh, Me either. Yeah, you, you didn't see it either, I'm sure, as we were, when we were Protestant <laughs> pastors. And, right. But he, he does it, and, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. No, I, <laughs> I agree. Uh, take me, take me from uh, the. Uh, well, if if we've got this Levitical priesthood, then what is David doing? Because uh, he obviously is taking part in some priestly activity. What's his relationship then to the Levitical priesthood? He's king. Sure. Yeah, he's a big exception to this pattern of Levitical priesthood. Um, he's anointed by uh, Samuel in First Samuel sixteen receives the Holy Spirit from that day forward. So this is interesting, Al. He's the only person in the Old Testament that's, that has the stable possession of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so the Church Fathers regard him as living in the New Covenant already. Hmm. And then after he becomes King of Jerusalem, he begins to exercise a priestly role as well, as we see him acting as a priest in first, um, sorry, 2 Samuel 6 where he wears a, a priestly ephod that was like a chasuble, like a priestly garment, and blessing the people and offering sacrifice, etc. But the reason why he can do that, we find out later, is that having become king of Jerusalem, he inherits a priesthood that belonged to the kingship of Jerusalem, 
And that kingship of Jerusalem goes back to that famous figure, Melchizedek, mm-hmm. who shows up in Genesis 14 and offers sacrifice and blesses Abraham. Now, in Jewish tradition, Al, as I point out in the book, Melchizedek was considered to be Shem, the oldest son of Noah. Hmm. And they regarded him as inheriting that kind of high priesthood of all humanity that goes back to Adam. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then that went with being Melchizedek's successor as king of Jerusalem, uh, just like, uh, you know, the, the Petrine throne is passed down to successors. You know, the successor of Peter sits down on the, on the seat of Peter and inherits his roles and responsibilities. And so when David inherits Melchizedek's throne as king of Jerusalem, he inherits this priestly role as well. That's why we see in Psalm 110 these statements about, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yes, yes. So from that point on, you have two priesthoods operating. You've got the, the standard Levitical priesthood as well as the sort of priesthood that the Davidic uh, kings have. And it's important for us to, to realize, though, you know, our Lord descends from David. That's the point of Matthew 1, yep. long genealogy at the beginning of the New Testament. And, but we forget there was a priesthood that went along with that kingship. Mm-hmm. And that helps us to understand, uh, you know, our Lord's ministry and, 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 and work uh, a little better. This is so important because I, I can remember for years uh, coming across Melchizedek uh, in various passages but really not quite getting why he's significant. I mean, he's kind of one of these figures who kind of like Alfred Hitchcock. He pops up in various <laughs> scenes in a cameo, you know? Um, right. <laughs> but, but he's much he's much more important than that, and apparently is, is in the rabbinic tradition he occupies an important place. Absolutely. Just a, just a, he's a fundamental link in the development of the priesthood in Jewish thought, um, because uh, they understood him to be Shem. And if you look at the genealogies in the Old Testament, Shem does live into the time of Noah, uh, sorry, in the time of Abraham, yeah. and uh, they made a logical deduction that this figure, you know, who in literally in the whole earth would, would be of such a status to be able to bless the great patriarch Abraham. Yeah. The, the only person alive on the planet at that time who would have had such a dignity would have been Shem, son of Noah, and so they, they made that equation, and you find it everywhere. You even find it, you find it in um, the medieval, um, the Glossa Ordinaria, the uh, medieval study Bible that was used in, all the way up into the time of the Reformation. It was just a commonplace in Jewish and Christian interpretation that this Melchizedek, you know, has this, he, he's Shem, son of Noah, and he's got this high priest of all humanity that goes all the way back to Adam. So absolutely right. He's a very theologically important figure. Yeah, yeah. I think this is something which completely lost uh, on me for many years. Um, let's uh, let's let's continue on here. David um, engages in priestly activ- activity even as king. So, in what way does he play into this theme of a royal priesthood? Sure. If we understand him as, you know, the heir of Melchizedek, and then Melchizedek as, you know, being Shem, and then all the way back to Adam, then what you see in, in David is kind of a new Adam figure. And it's not just in terms of his priesthood, but in so many ways, like Psalm 8, for example, which is a psalm of David, um, can be read as, as a prayer of thanks from David to God, for God having, in a sense, restored to David this um, this kingship over all creation. 
you know, David was was the high king, really in the whole earth during his lifetime. At the height of his career, he he was at the top of you know human society. Other kings were vassals of him, and so this kingship over all creation was, in a sense, that 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 belonged to Adam was was realized under David. Um, but then that's a type, that's a model of of our Lord, right. uh, the Son of David, who's, who's king, priest, and, and has these Adamic roles over all creation, universal priest, universal king, and, and David is a type and a preimage of that. Now, you've traced two types of priesthood. You've got the priesthood of the uh, Levites, you've got the priesthood of Melchizedek here. How does this develop uh, during the exile and through the prophetic uh, and before the exile, but through the prophetic uh, literature. Sure. So, you know, there's there's always this sense that, you know, the Levitical priesthood was plan B because it resulted from the failure right. of the fathers and the firstborn of Israel to, you know, maintain true worship. And so there's a sense that we want to get back to that, uh, that, that Adamic priesthood um, that was more natural. And, uh, and, and so in the, in the prophets, you, you have these interesting passages um, in Isaiah, uh, for example, in Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 66, that look forward to a future age when uh, Gentiles are, are going to come, and even Gentiles will be able to participate in the priesthood. Now look forward to the New Testament. Well, and that's what we're going to do in the next segment. Look at the priesthood in the New Testament. And of course, <clears throat> the central figure is the Lord Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we'll be back with Dr. John Bergsma taking a look at Jesus and the Old Testament roots of the priesthood. I'm Al Creston. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. John Bergsma. He is the author of Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood. And um, we've looked, <clears throat> been looking at the uh, priesthood, which goes back to Adam himself, and then its development. We want to make sure we spend sufficient time in this segment looking at Jesus and the priesthood, this idea of the new covenant priesthood. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, the beginning of the program, the non-Catholic critique of the Catholic priesthood is that it can't be found <clears throat> in the New Testament. <clears throat> they concede, of course, that Jesus is the great high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. But, <clears throat> excuse me, even with that, they, have a dip- they seem to gloss over particular priestly actions that show up in the life of Jesus, actually, beginning, uh, at least from his presentation in the temple. Tell us a little bit about this, the, the priestly aura, if you will, around Jesus, uh, really from his birth, uh, in the, at least the presentation in the temple in Luke chapter 2. Sure. So the presentation, which we, you know, we just celebrated a, a few months ago, uh, last month, I guess, what is it, March? Yeah, February. Celebrating the presentation, and if you look at the liturgy for that Mass, um, Al, you know, it's full of these priestly images, um, because it, it's under, the presentation is understood to fulfill 
um, you know, a prophesy of Malachi that um, one day um, the the Messiah would come and and suddenly enter into the temple and bring a purifying spirit uh, to the priesthood. And so, our Lord's first entry into the temple uh, there is is seen as kind of like D Day of the uh, the the onslaught of God. <laughs> Uh, you know, to to purify the temple and the people yeah. and uh, and the priesthood, and um, so you know, it, it's it's interesting when we look at Luke two, the the Jewish practice was uh, when you when you had a firstborn son, um, he had to be bought back from God at the price of an animal sacrifice, and and then his place in the temple. Uh, was taken by a Levite. That was the concept. You see this huh. in Numbers, uh, for example. And so the this is the origin of the offering on behalf of the firstborn. The, the sense was that your firstborn ought to be a priest. He ought to be dedicated to the temple and spend his life serving the Lord in the temple. But the Levites take his place, but you have to buy him back from God at the price of the animal. Now, interestingly, when we look in um, uh, Luke chapter 1, and um, uh, in, in chapter two, uh, we find that uh, our Lord is not bought back. Huh. Luke does not record this um, the sacrifice of the firstborn. Instead, he records a, a purification sacrifice that often went along with birth. And so that raises an interesting question: Is that just an oversight on Luke's part, or uh, which I don't think it is, or is the the gospel author really trying to show us already? that our Lord never was redeemed from his priestly role. He never was, as it were, bought back from God, but but he he was meant as a perennial priest. And then almost the next story is our Lord being left behind at the temple. Yes. And uh, Joseph and Mary go back, and, and our Lord seems to be kind of confused as to be as to why they're coming back to get him. And he says, well, didn't you know I have to be in my father's house? It was like, <laughs> was it... Wasn't this the plan? Right. I was going to stay in the temple and do my priestly duty like Samuel did in the Old Testament. Um, later on in the Gospels, Jesus uh, compares himself to David. Um, there's this interesting episode when the apostles are plucking grain on the Sabbath. Uh, this, uh, again, may it may not be apparent what's going on here, but tell us the priestly significance of this passage in Matthew 12, uh, verses 1 through 8. This is a great example where our Jewish brothers, when they read our own sacred texts, oftentimes see things more clearly than we do. And I never understood the implications of, of this incident, Al, where our Lord is threshing out the grain, or his, at least his disciples are, on the Sabbath as they walk through these grain fields, and he's challenged about it. And he responds by saying, don't you remember how David and his men ate the holy bread in the temple, which wasn't lawful for them? And don't you remember how the priests work in the temple on the Sabbath day, and yet they're guiltless because it's their priestly duty? Mm-hmm. And um, Benedict XVI deals with this in his book, uh, his first volume of Jesus of Nazareth, and he quotes on this uh, Rabbi Jacob Neusner, one of the most prolific rabbi scholars of uh, America yep. in the 20th century. 
And Neuster reads this passage, and he says, well, it's obvious Jesus can do what he does because he and his disciples are taking over the place of the priests in the temple. (laughs) Oh my gosh, when I read that, the scale fell from my eyes. Like, I never realized it. It takes a Jewish brother to see the implications of Jesus because our Lord was, in one sense, a Jewish rabbi. He he did have that role. (laughs) And, um, you know, another great thing to read is the Catholic Encyclopedia on Matthew 16, if you ever want a, a shock because they see so clearly what the implications of the keys of the kingdom being given to Peter. But that's a, a different uh, discussion. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, the point is, Al, in Matthew 12 there, our Lord is claiming a priestly status for himself and for his apostles. And, for the and apostles. it's just the first. Yes, and for the apostles, too. And it's just the first of a number of incidents where, like I said before, Jesus gradually confers the different duties of the priesthood onto his apostles. Uh in John chapter 2, we have 18 to 22, uh, Jesus is contrasting uh, the temple made of stone with himself uh, as the temple. Uh, this obviously has a priestly implications to it. It sure does. We have that striking statement that John supplies in John two twenty one. He says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And then we have to ask ourselves, Al, like, who in Judaism had a body temple, you know? How would this have been understood by the first Jewish readers of the Gospel? And when we look for that person in Judaism, that was the high priest. He wore a blue robe that was meant to look like the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And, And that's because he was identified with the temple. He was like the temple man, uh, the cosmic temple man whose body kind of embodied or was like the navel of the entire uh, temple court. Yeah. And so when he entered in in this robe this, this, that, that identified him as a temple, you know, he was the man whose body was kind of the, the, the sacrament of the temple. And so when Jesus, you know, makes these statements, destroy this temple, and I will build it back up, you know, speaking of his body, one of the connections there, then, is is really strongly to the high priest. Very good. Um, now, I, I want to make sure we get, we've got about five minutes here, and I want to spend that focusing in on the the Last Supper, the, the, the night in which he was betrayed, because this is where most people would think we'd jump to right away, if we were going to talk about priest... Uh, you know, Jesus as priest and his apostles as priests. You've got the high priestly prayer of Jesus and all this. So let's go there, because both John and the Synoptic Gospels uh, are showing different aspects of uh, Jesus' priesthood, but also the priesthood of the apostles. Where do you like to begin there? Sure. Well, let's begin with the, um, the foot washing, which we're going to read you know, uh, this evening. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're going to be at Mass, we're going to read this, and let's look at that, because... We usually think, oh, this is just like humble service. You know, Jesus is setting us an example of humble service. Right. So much more going on, though, because priests had to wash their feet before entering the sanctuary to offer sacrifice, and that's the second level of what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing them as a priesthood, washing their feet, then he's going to show them how to offer the one sacrifice that's going to continue into the New Covenant, which is the Thanksgiving sacrifice, we call it. Uh, the Eucharist. And then we have that interchange between 
Peter and our Lord, where Peter says, you can't wash me, and our Lord says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. (laughs) And there, we're using language from the Old Testament, where the Levitical priests, their only part, their only inheritance was the Lord himself. They didn't get any land. All the other tribes got a piece of land, Mm -hmm. but their entire part was in the Lord. And so, you know, that's referring to Peter and and the rest of the apostles, them having this priestly portion, which is only going to be the Lord, you know. And we see that so well in our our Latin rite priesthood, who, you know, celibate and detached from the world, their their only part is the Lord. So that that has a, you know, priestly connotation. And then it goes on, of course, later, and then at the end of the whole Last Supper discourse, which we're not going to read uh, tonight, but it's that it ends in John 17 with our Lord's high priestly prayer, where he prays for the Father to, in Greek, hagiazo uh, the apostles. It's usually translated consecrate, but you could almost translate it ordain. Yes. Uh, because it's so closely related to the idea of ordination in the Old Testament. So he's really, you know, praying that the Father consecrate and ordain these twelve to to be to have this sacred role of service uh, for the for the church for the community of God's people now that we are into the new covenant. In Matthew twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You point out in the book that this phrase, blood of the covenant, we probably at first glance think that it's a very common phrase biblically, but it's not. Tell us it what's used. Wow, this was impressive. You, you have to go all the way back to uh, Moses at Sinai in Exodus 24, where he says this is the blood of the covenant when he's sprinkling the blood on the 12 tribes. And and then there's one allusion to this in um, in Zechariah, where Zechariah also looks back to Sinai and, and uses this phrase again. And those are the only two occurrences of blood of the covenant uh, in, in the Old Testament. So... What Jesus is saying, when he says, this is the blood of the covenant, he's saying, what I'm doing here, I mean, it hasn't been done since Moses. I am remaking with you 12 apostles, you know, a new covenant relationship to replace what Moses did with the 12 tribes. And it's so earth-shaking, you know, it's just so epic. And, and, And yet, 21st century American Christians read this and think, oh, this is just a meal that Jesus gave us to help remember him by, you know? <laughs> right. Like, could have given us a hamburger, could have given us an oatmeal, you know, give us bread and wine, whatever, but, you know, we just, <laughs> so we, we, we eat it, we think about Jesus. Like, no! You don't get, the, like, the earth-shaking... Right, right. This is a, this is a new order of things that's happening here. That's just incredible. Um, Absolutely cool. I want to make sure there's so we could go. We didn't even get to the book of Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews, which tells us what kind of priest Jesus is. But <clears throat> we didn't get to the idea of do this in remembrance of me. The uh, anamnesis, the Old Testament sacrificial system was so important there. But I have to ask you about the the practice of a celibate priesthood. Uh, in your book, Jesus uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, you made a great point. Talk to us about what we should know about the celibate priesthood and its rootedness in first-century Palestinian Judaism. Absolutely. So it really has two sources. On the one hand, many of the prophets committed themselves to celibacy because of the rigors of the prophetic vocation. 
So you have prophetic celibacy. Not all, but many of the prophets, and that's a tradition. And then there was priestly continence. Uh, the priests could not engage in relations during those times when they were assigned to minister in the temple. And so drawing on both that prophetic celibacy and that priestly continence, um, that's what you see in the, the celibacy of the New Testament priesthood. And it was anticipated, again, by the Essenes, who saw many of these things, but the Essenes considered themselves to be a priestly people, that their community was a replacement for the temple. And so they embraced that celibate call because they saw themselves in the tradition of the prophets and the priests. Amazing. John, thank you so much for your work, for being with me today. Uh, Have a blessed Easter, and uh, thanks again. Oh, you're very welcome. Always great to be out with you, Al. Blessed Holy Thursday to you. Dr. John Bergsma, Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood, essential reading. Jesus and the Old Testament Roots of the Priesthood.